the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands, one nation, under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. No government admits any more that it keeps an army to satisfy occasionally the desire for conquest. Rather, the army is supposed to serve for defense. And one invokes the morality that approves of self-defense. But this implies that one's own morality and the neighbor's immorality, for the neighbor must be thought as an eager to attack and conquer if our state must think of means of self-defense. Nietzsche. In the current global climate, we see more and more the rise of issues such as inequality, poverty, conflict, and climate catastrophe. On top of all that, world leaders seem to continuously adopt ideologies and practices that not only do not work towards amending these issues, but in making them worse. Welcome to this episode of Global Get Down. I'm your co-host, Shreya. And I'm your co-host, Johnny. We'd like to start off by introducing our theme for this season. This season, we at the URSA podcast team have decided to focus on the theme of unlearning with the hope of getting insights into the history of problematic systems of thought that we often take at face value. And so, in the series of episodes, we'll have conversations and debates with experts from different fields of academia with the goal of exploring the genealogy of modern thought. And today, we bring Jovi Andradeshwar, a political scientist and international relations professor at Douglas College to help us make sense of the history behind these problematic theories of international relations in order to shine some light on how we got to where we are now. Jovian, welcome. Feel free to introduce yourself. My name is Jovian. I'm, I'm a professor at Douglas College. I, I'm, I'm from California and New York, an American living in Canada since 2016. And um, yeah, I just uh, have a lot to say about this. So let's get into it. Favorite subject. For sure. Absolutely. And again, thank you so much for coming. Um, I'll like to start off this conversation with a quote from uh, Thrasymachus in Plato's Republic, where he says, um, justice is nothing else than the interest of the stronger. Um, when I first came across this, I couldn't help but to make a connection to, to today's world of international relations, where of security, um, state expansion, and the military all serve as a major point of conflict between how we organize ourselves as a global community. So I was wondering, Jovian, if you could take me from this idea of the interest of the stronger to the current climate today. Plato, of course, is somebody who overall argues, if you read his work at face value, against the concept that justice is in the interest of the stronger, because he feels that justice is this true transcendental thing that is reflective of a perfection of morality that can only be found in such a way when everybody is given their just place in society is the idea that maybe justice is in fact something that um, maybe isn't really all it's set out to be, right? In the Republic, you have Thrasymachus say, justice is in the interest of the stronger in book one when he's debating Socrates about the you know, sort of proto-debates before they really get into it when they talk about the ideal city. In the work of Thrasymachus, who was an Athenian historian during the Peloponnesian War, uh, he writes um, a dialogue called the Melian Dialogue. And in that dialogue, in that book, The History of the Peloponnesian War, he refers to how the people of the city of Milos are being requested by the Athenians to surrender um, and this is an imperial competition where the Athenians are fighting against the empire of Sparta and any defection by a satellite state, uh, a smaller state, um, uh, 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 an allied state, a neutral state, a defection by anybody to the other side or even to neutrality itself is seen as a threat to the imperial power. So the Athenians threaten the Melians. They say either submit or we're going to kill everybody in your town. And by everybody, that meant every, um, every, every male, right? Every male over a certain age that would be of army age, I suppose, would be killed. And the Melians said, you know, why, why do we have to do this? Can't we just be your trading partner as we've always been without necessarily taking sides one way or the other? We're not supporting the other side. We're still your trading partner, right? 
But when the Melians refuse to submit, the Athenians do send a campaign to destroy the city of Melos, and that's exactly what they do. And during that Melian dialogue, the Athenian envoy to Melos says that the weak do what they can and the strong do what they will, right? So similar to this idea of justice being in the interest of the stronger. So when Thrasymachus says this in Plato's Republic, what he's essentially saying is that there is no such thing as justice because justice itself is a concept that's been used to conceal over the interest of the stronger. And when he's engaging in this early discussion with Socrates, of course, that flies directly in the face of what Socrates, um, mouthed by Plato, wants us to believe that justice is this true transcendental thing. Now, when we think about justice as nothing else than the interest of the stronger, we can read it in two ways. One way is that it could be seen as a general statement that justice itself is, in fact, this perverse concept, right? That there is no justice, that the only justice is violence and force. <clears throat> Another way of reading it is that justice as a hegemony, as an international law itself, only conceals the use of violence and force. So in both of those respects, the idea of justice goes very much against what we would see in the sort of modern UN liberal international law tradition, uh, going back to the 1600s with figures like Grotius and Kant and uh, you know other folks as well. Um, and we see a much stronger admission into the reality of power politics. And so I think that it's very clear that in today's world, as we see a, un, a, a hegemony coming apart, especially U.S. hegemony coming apart, we see a reemergence of much more um, particularistic concepts of justice, right? And indeed, it's a lot about who can get away with what in what region. Recent saber rattling over Taiwan, for example, comes to mind because certainly the people of Taiwan would say, I mean, they're Milos, right? The people of Taiwan would say, well, we're a nation, you know, we, we can do our own thing. And it's a just world order that everybody gets to have what? Self-determination, right? That's part of the justice, quote unquote, of our modern world system, that every nation is entitled to self-determination. Now, we know that most nations, especially indigenous nations, are denied the right to self-determination all over the world. But of course, you can look at this example also with regard to you know, the case of Taiwan, right? The Taiwanese want their own independent nation state, but China says, well, you know, you can't do that because you've always been a part of us. And this area, East Asia, is our sphere of influence. And so we can see that power, right, still plays an elemental role. And in fact, that role is coming back all the time more and more. And we'll see very interesting, I think, transformations about around regional power dynamics in the coming years. Right, India trying to flex its muscle in Bhutan and Nepal and Sri Lanka, of course, can't do very much in Pakistan, but it can in indirectly influence Pakistan by also meddling, of course, in Afghanistan. Right. So this very idea of justice existing at all, I think, is something that we should be quite uh, uh, cynical about. So when we look at this idea of justice from this critical perspective, we can actually see that underneath it all, I mean, I hate to be crude, is simply just force, right? It's simply just force. And his whole philosophy, if you want to understand Nietzsche, it's all about how ideas are turned into these things that rule over us, but that don't actually exist, right? They don't necessarily exist outside our human creation, right? So when Nietzsche, for example, echoes Thrasymachus's remarks when he talks about the origins of morals, what we can think about what justice is, is simply the power politics players of the day attempting to freeze into place a particular set of values as laws. So that's what Thrasymachus means when he says justice is in the interest of the stronger, in my opinion. It's a deep sort of almost genealogical understanding of the concept of justice. And, and that's... That's very similar to what we're doing today. We're taking these concepts, right? These ideas of IR right now that everyone just takes as face value. Justice is one of them, right? And then you look at the history of it, you look at the genealogy of it, just like Nietzsche is going to do to morality. And then you arrive at a point where you start to question the 
how genuine these ideas are, right? And I'd like to ask if you could take me from this idea of Nietzsche too. Let's go to Nietzsche. When he talks about um, the idea of um, the will to power and how we can very much see a very clear idea of this will to power in today's world of international relations, the today's world of uh, national defense, which, uh, like you previously said, how can everyone be defending, right? Right. Indeed. Th thank you for that, actually, uh, that, 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 that segue, because indeed, when we think about the idea of today's foreign policy practices by every major nation state, right, every single one of them refers to as Joao alluded to, their militaries as defense establishments. None of them actually call them, um, you know, uh, uh, offense or department of adventurism, right, or anything like that. They just call them defense establishments. And Nietzsche argues in the text Human All Too Human that indeed this is disingenuous. He calls it the doctrine of the army, that we have this world in which nations, right, are ranged across each other. Here's one nation, here's another, there's a border between them, and they've got their guns pointed at each other across the border. Or Russia and China and the United States have their ICBMs pointed at each other globally. The argument that all these countries make is they need this in order to be able to defend against the enemy. But they all make that argument. They all say that they need to defend against the enemy, which means that secretly they all think that while their enemy says that their enemy is just defending as well, that their enemy is actually being disingenuous and is fixing to do a surprise attack or something like that. So there's this tension that emerges between what you can call peace and not peace. The political scientist Jack Snyder has referred to this as the stability-instability paradox. Because when you have this idea of peace that's brought about through everyone being armed to the teeth, at certain levels, at a certain threshold, nobody's going to shoot because the costs are too high. But if you can keep violence below that threshold, then the possibility of a counter strike is itself not going to be happening because the cost of a counter to that counter strike is too high. So there's always a threat of low level violence occurring. And if you look at the international system since the beginning of the Cold War, you see every major power engaging in the use of irregular actors throughout the world, right? We can call them terrorist groups, but I would only caution that that word doesn't apply just to people who are Muslim. That applies to anybody in this context that's using violence in an irregular and surprising fashion. And so that could be you know, irregular groups, obviously, from any religion. It could be state uh, authorities that are acting outside of the expectations of international law, either overtly, as, say, the United States when they invaded Iraq in 2003, or covertly, as the U.S. and the Saudis and the Russians and the Chinese and the Iranians and the Jordanians and Syrians and so many other countries are, of course, involved in covert actions all over the world, right? So this is something that shows that there's a sort of opening, right, in the world system that's emerged because of our sort of misunderstanding, I think, of this concept of justice. Oh, yeah, totally. It's interesting, too, because not only justice is one of the lies that we're told, um, maybe not lies, but narrative that we're supposed to follow. But yeah, not only justice is one of the narratives that us as a collective, we, uh, we tend to follow. But also ideas that you begin to question, such as the idea of the nation, right? What does it mean to be part of a nation? How is the connection that um, some of these leaders make when talking in, in the interests of the nation? What does that even mean, right? Like, what is the, the psychological connection between, for example, a Canadian and Canada, right? Or a person living up north, right? Um, so, yeah, I just wanted to ask to you, like, what is everyday people's connection to the nation and how... Maybe that plays out, like where does this idea came from, right? Yeah, what a fascinating concept, right? The word nation, of course, if you take the prefix natio, N-A-T-I-O, that's something that's found in Latin, and that refers to origins or birth. So a nation is, and you know, if you know Spanish, for example, the word nacer is the verb to be born. It's also cognate from this uh, word natio, right? 
And um, forgive me if my Latin pronunciation is wrong. I haven't studied Latin. I've just read the words on the page and their der derivations on the page. So my pronunciation may be off. But that prefix N-A-T-I-O, let's call it natio, means natality, right? Birth, common origins. So a nation is a community with common origins. Now, of course, that's bullshit. Literally, that's bullshit. Because the only group with common origins is the human race. Because all of us, genealogically, we've been traced back to having common origins on the African continent. And since we left the African continent, we've all had a lot of sex with each other. So there's a whole bunch of mixed up people all over the world. There are some nations that are relatively more homogeneous than others, but there are no purely homogeneous nations. Strong, robust national populations are based on mixtures of people. So the very idea of common origins is a myth. Now, within a few centuries, within a few generations, of course, such a myth can build up because generally speaking, especially with the way that, you know, people haven't traveled a lot until recently in human history. They've kind of been in their own village, their own neighborhood. Of course, those common origins can tend to be in, uh, intensified or the feeling of that can tend to be intensified because of the limited horizons that people have within one lifetime, right? Even I, I was born in India. I grew up in New York City and then I lived for 17 years in California and I feel like a Californian. Now, it, does that mean that I'm not those other things also? No, but, you know, on some level, there's an emotional purchase there on my heart and soul from having lived in one place for such a long time. So if I think about, you know, the, the nationalism or patriotism that I have, mainly it's for California, right? So nationalism is a bit, it's in the eye of the beholder, right? And it's, it's based on feelings. It's based on your love of a place that you live on some level. But it's, of course, harvested. It's harvested by leaders of, of larger entities, nation states, for the purpose of getting you to do one very, very important thing. It's discussed in this book by Carl Schmitt, The Concept of the Political, and that is to be willing to make the ultimate sacrifice for the nation. You have to be willing to kill yourself for the nation. And that's ultimately the kind of emotional connection that leaders want you to have with their nation. So that's what leaders want. What do everyday people want? This is where things get really interesting because we live in a world today where the working class of the entire world is increasingly on the march all over the world, right? We see huge amounts of work absenteeism, for example, in North America, but that's also the case in many parts of the world right now. Who benefits from people going to work every day? the traditional leaders of the nation, right? Because they get to continue being elected. They get to continue drawing taxes. They get to continue saying, we provide the terms of order in which you can succeed and become prosperous and thrive, right? But of course, as we know, globalization of capitalism has created a situation where the elites all around the world, going back to at least the 1970s, have made a number of deals with each other that enhance their status as elites at the cost of the working class and middle class majorities of their nations. For example, shipping production to other countries um, has been a big thing, right? Outsourcing has really transformed the global economy in recent years. So what I'm suggesting is that while we still, everyday people, we have a strong emotional connection to the nation, everyday people are also becoming, as we know from the the populist movements around the world, they're becoming more and more cynical about state authority at the same time. So people are increasingly, I think, willing to question nationalism while also at the same time they remain emotionally connected to it. It's creating a, an opportunity for different kinds of political leaders to claim that they speak for the nation and not those old liberal elites from the previous round of hegemony after World War II that were more connected to the U.S. So this is where we can see the term justice come back again because we can see that it's become about power politics, right? Who controls the nation is going to decide what's just. Pushback, for example, against liberal elites has become very important in understanding how nationalism is working all around the world today. 
That being said, since I'm on the left, I would simply add that, you know, I hold out the hope that this gap that's created shows an opportunity for internationalism, namely that people can identify with each other across national borders as well. But we can see that leaders are doing their very best to restrict immigration, to do demagogic populism in terms of bad-mouthing the other, right? That's become quite common all over the world as a, a democratic uh, political practice. I say democratic because they use it to whoop up votes for their side. Thank you, Joby. And I particularly uh, found interesting was uh, the part where you challenge nationality as being an idea of something that is emerging from common origins, right? So I was wondering if that could be tied to how many scholars agree that international relations has a Eurocentric bias, right? And how this idea contributes to the Westphalian narrative being the center of evolution in international relations scholarship. Brilliant question. Absolutely brilliant question. So there's this other book by Carl Schmidt. I've got it right here. It's called Theory of the Partisan. And I'm going to share one quote with you to um, set up my answer to this question. It's very brief. If those of you who are, are listening have this book or want to read it on your own, this is the 2007 Telos Press edition. And I'm looking at page 32, which is the last um, page of chapter or the introduction and the last part of the introduction. And Schmidt writes the following in that particular section. The 1949 Geneva Conventions are the work of a human disposition and a humanitarian development that are admirable, right? That are admirable. Given that they give the enemy not only humanity, but even justice in the sense of recognition, they remain based on the foundation of classical international law and its tradition, without which such a work of humanity would be improbable. Its fundament, its fundamental basis, remains the conduct of war based on the state and the bracketing of war with its clear distinctions between war and peace, military and civilian, enemy and criminal, state war and civil war. So war is a special category according to the classical international law, that's the Westphalian system, that can only happen between two states. That's the original convention. But what Schmidt says in the last sentence, which I'm about to read is as follows, is that the Geneva Conventions of 49, which still preserved international law and international sovereignty, contained within them a germ of expansionism. However, the extent to which these essential distinctions are loosened or challenged, the door is open for a type of war that consciously destroys these clear separations. Then many discreetly stylized compromise norms appear only as the narrow bridge over an abyss, which conceals a successive transformation of concepts of war, enemy, and partisan. So this book, Theory of the Partisan, he's going to argue that international law for centuries tried to freeze war into this Westphalian context, that Austria fights Germany, and for a modern understanding, perhaps India fights Pakistan, right? But what we also see is that there's this argument that once we have a, U, uh, essentially what he's alluding to, the loosening of distinctions, is the growth of the United States as a global power as an international power. And when it does that, and it uses the idea of humanitarian law on a global stage, what it does is it creates a world in which you have two layers of order. One layer is the traditional nation state order, but another layer is a new international order where the United States through its United Nations allies, of course it created the United Nations, is able to define certain groups as the enemy of all of humanity. And as Schmidt says, that opens the door to a new kind of war that destroys those distinctions. And so the world we live in today, we see the Westphalian idea of sovereignty being walked over by major powers that can do this in their neighborhood. And of course, the U.S. has done it all over the world. And when they do that, they create a great deal 
of imbalance around the world. And the only way to deal with this imbalance, Schmidt argues in this book, and it happens, he's not saying it's a policy he's advocating, he's just saying it happens, is you see the emergence of this figure called the partisan. And the partisan can appear on the left and on the right. And what the partisan is, is somebody who wants to use violence to assert sovereignty. And they feel that the other systems out there, the, the, the global empire or the local bully nation state that's stronger than their own nation, that those nations are undoing sovereignty. And so the partisan simply emerges as a figure. And the partisan can be compared to, say, Schmidt himself refers to Che Guevara in the book. You could also, of course, refer to somebody like Osama bin Laden. But Schmidt also talks about somebody else a guy named Raul Salan, and he's very interesting. He was the member of a group called the French Secret Army. And the Secret Army operated in France, in Algeria, and in Corsica, the island off the coast of France in the Mediterranean that's part of French territory, during the French-Algerian War. And Raul Salan was a French right-wing radical who felt that the French army and the French political leadership were selling out the French empire. So what Raoul Salan did was engage in terrorism, not just against Algerians, but also against French, liberal French, even French elites. In Paris, bombs were set off by this guy. He killed civilians in the name of France, is how he said it when he was finally put in court. So Carl Schmitt applauds Raoul Salan. He thinks that this is the kind of patriotism that's necessary to defend the nation state because the Westphalian order, which was good from Schmidt's perspective, has fallen apart. Now, the reason Schmidt agrees with the Westphalian perspective, going back to your question, is because Schmidt ultimately says, along with Hobbes, along with Nietzsche, this goes back to Joao's point about the will to power a few minutes ago, that human beings are... Not, not necessarily good or bad inherently, but that the world makes us evil. We have no choice but to be evil to, but to, in order to survive in this world. And that the only way to organize this evil and to contain it and to limit its destructive power is to organize human societies into nation states. And so a very close collaborator of Carl Schmidt was a guy named Hans Morgenthau. And Hans Morgenthau and Carl Schmidt were both Germans. They both did their PhDs in, I'm sorry, Schmidt was a lawyer, excuse me, but Morgenthau did his PhD in political theory, and they were both Nietzscheans. Morgenthau was a liberal, though, was not, Schmidt, by the way, was Hitler's lawyer. Pretty bad man. He was a bad man. In um, this book over here, Crisis of Parliamentary Democracy, he argues that totalitarianism is more democratic than pluralist democracy because pluralist democracy has been corrupted by capitalism to the extent that you can never get a real direct policy out of the um, kind of um, bargaining process that you see in parliaments. And because of that, people lose faith in democracy. So you need to have a strong executive. And to be clear, in Crisis of Parliamentary Democracy, he argues that not only do dictatorships like the Fuhrer's Germany, require a strong executive. But he also cites Abraham Lincoln in the United States invoking emergency powers in order to win the U.S. Civil War. The guy is really widely read on a lot of Western political theory, and he writes a great deal about how Hobbes also agrees with many of his points. But him and Hobbes disagree on a very important point. They disagree on how evil human beings are by nature. Right. Schmidt argues that human beings are extremely evil and that, in fact, all of human history has, in the absence of elite rule, in the absence of religious morality, in the absence of what he calls in another book, political theology, people lose faith in order. And as they lose faith in order, there's no longer a possibility of maintaining order anymore at all. And so you have to have this fate accompli of one, having the state to protect you from the external enemy, and two, having the state be strong internally to protect you from the internal enemy. 
and he refers to that as the domestic enemy in his work. So this Westphalian order that we live in is one that's based on ultimately us buying into the truth of all that. Yes, the enemy out there is real. Yes, the enemy in here is real. And if you look at the history, for example, of U.S. foreign policy discourses, texts, for example, you'll find crude characterizations of the other, and you'll find a steady stream of internal enemies, communists, gays, feminists, um, drug users, right? We have a war on drugs in the United States, after all, right? Um, even in recent uh, times, you have this uh, trial in Georgia of um, the white men who murdered Ahmad Arbery, this black man who was out for a jog. And in the courtroom, they're talking about how much THC was in his blood, as if that has anything to do with him being shot and killed while two men are driving down the street, pursuing him down the street. How much THC is in his blood? That's legal in Canada. That's legal in 30 states in the United States, although not federally yet. So this is the kind of demonization narrative that we have to buy into in order to believe in the Westphalian state, right? We have to buy into the idea that the nation really knows who its enemies are. So protecting identity in this pure sense requires this irrational border policing, right? To borrow a concept from the sister Harsha Walia, the, the great BC activist Harsha Walia, right? It requires what we can call border imperialism. I don't have that book handy over here. We can call it border imperialism because as I said before, we've all been having sex with each other since the dawn of time. So where do you draw the border, right? Where do you draw the border? In India, during the partition of India from Pakistan, you have rapes being committed by men from one community against women of the other community, right? And so this scholar Paul Brass has argued that in the partition of India, the bodies of women themselves became the border that was being drawn. And as Schmidt said in the quote that I read to you there, the extent to which essential distinctions are loosened or even challenged the door is open for a type of war that consciously destroys these clear separations. So in the context of a civil war, in the context of the Indian partition, what we have happening is the old identities are being challenged by new identities, identities which claim to be purer than the old identities, right? So when we see this destruction of say, indigenous ways of being and the superimposition of an uh, imperial way of being, we see many discreetly stylized compromise norms appearing as the only bridge over an abyss. Because what is the partition of India and Pakistan? It's an abyss, right? An abyss, as Nietzsche says, you open it up, you see the monsters, they look back at you, everybody goes evil, right? That's the abyss. Or Hobbes's state of nature, if you want to use that example too, can come to mind. So how do you get out of the state of nature? What Schmidt is saying here is the only bridge are compromise norms which conceal the successive transformation of concepts of war, enemy, and partisan. What are these compromise norms? Race, nationality, religious purity. Because those norms, how do you signify them? Well, for example, if you go to India today, right? I'm from a Hindu family background. But my Hindu family members will tell me, shave off your beard because, why? You look like a Muslim, right? That's why they'll say it, right? So that's something you can do in order to signal to the other, hey, I'm a safe person. I've shaved my beard, right? If I go fly to the United States, um, that's what I'll do before I get on the plane. I signal to the border guards, hey, leave me the hell alone. I'm a safe person right? Now that's very crude, right? That doesn't really say anything about who I am one way or the other, but it is, as Schmidt says, it's a compromise norm, right? And so in a context like this, say, go back to the example of partition of India, when Hindus are raping Muslim women and Muslim women are raping Hindu women, and both of those communities are raping Sikh women and Sikh men are raping the women of those communities. How do you start to end that conflict? 
Well, what did they do? They started to signify that this is a safe space for Muslims. This is a safe space for Hindus. And how do you signal that you're in the right place? You dress that way. You pray that way, right? And of course, once the partition violence started to simmer down, what did these countries do? They literally created commissions to exchange the women of the other side back to the other side, as if these women were somehow owned possessions of both sides, right? Indeed, some women, the scholar um, Yasmin Khan has written a fantastic book about this called The Great Partition. I highly recommend it. And in that book, she points out that a lot of the women actually didn't necessarily even want to go back because they used the opportunity of the chaos to escape from their patriarchal oppressive families. And some women even had lovers from the other community and they used that opportunity to abscond with their lovers. So when they were asked to go back to their previous communities, that was actually what? A form of, well, needless to say, ownership the feminist IR scholar, perhaps you're reading her in some of your classes, J. Ann Tickner, makes precisely this point. Who protects women from the army? Who protects women from the police? Because indeed, in war, this is who gets attacked by, those, by the army and the police, right? Indeed, in history and very prominently in like the Bosnia War and in other wars recently, rape has been used as a weapon of war. And of course, it was used in the partition as well. So this particular understanding of the, the terms of order is such that we have a system that is based on people ultimately accepting that this violence is normal, right? And that, the, and that whoever is authorized to carry it out is doing so in a good name. That was a beautiful answer, Jovian. I think your answer helps us unlearn certain aspects of international relations scholarship, especially because it has such a strong Eurocentric bias and this uh, Westphalian narrative. As you mentioned, it distorts the image of the enemy and it makes us question certain major events taught to us um, in our history class, actually. I just want to jump back and say one quick thing about that Eurocentric aspect, because I, I, I had something in my mind I wanted to say about that, but you just reminded me I didn't quite mention it. Very quickly, right? The Eurocentric bias, obviously, right? Europe conquered the world, and the Westphalian nation state is an emergence itself out of a compromise between European states. Very important point. Because especially for undergrads studying IR, I know I had this misimpression when I was an undergrad studying IR, right? <clears throat> we, we tend to study this great man theory of history, which also uh, coincides with a great dates theory of history. So we all think 1648, that's when this shit started happening, right? Except it actually was bubbling up for many decades before 1648. And of course, 1648 itself was just the end of a 30 years war. And that 30 years war saw a transition from the uh, imperial Holy Roman system to the new nation state system in Europe. And the nation state itself was simply a compromise that said that the princes and the kings and the queens of Europe could decide the religion within their space. Right. That's what the Westphalian system is all about. Are the, is this area Protestant? Is this area Catholic? And of course, what this created was an immediate minorities problem. In France, the question of the Huguenots, for example. If you apply that to India, Pakistan, you can see that this is where we get the issue of, well, this is for Hindus, this is for Muslims. And even though India ostensibly was secular, we know that its culture, its public culture is hegemonically Hindu because of the overwhelming influence of the Hindu religion and its various uh, regional forms throughout the Indian subcontinent. In fact, that influence is so strong that it also colorizes the, practice, the practices of Islam in South Asia as well. So my point simply being that as India and then the other post-colonial countries, India was the first one in many cases, right? 1947, the independence of India and Pakistan then becomes an inspiration for movements in Africa and in Latin America and other places as well. And that creates a global modeling effect, an isomorphic effect, 
where new nations are copying the institutional forms of previous nations. And the most central form is we control this territory. We have it on lockdown. And if we don't have it on lockdown, what does it mean? It means somehow we're lesser than the other nation states in the world system. We won't get our respect in the world system. The political scientist, he's a comparative political science scholar, Charles Tilley. He writes that the original nation states were simply territorial gangsters. So I think that's a helpful understanding with regard to how this connects specifically to how now nation states are being copied around the world. So yes, Eurocentric originally, yes, Eurocentric ideals still at the bottom of it, but what's lost is a whole world of indigenous alternatives to that, right? There are many alternative forms of sovereignty that are not necessarily based on exclusive territory. They can be based on shared territory. They can be based on all kinds of different agreements that existed all over the world. But we have lost that history because of the ascendancy of the state system. And of course, Marx would say that all of this has to do with simply creating stable business arrangements for capitalism, which of course benefits the elites in those states all around the world. Um, so, Jovian, I, I think you already touched upon this in your previous answer about how indigenous territories have been affected by this. So how would you say that the emergence of the modern international system has been distorted by this narrative and this bias? So, it, it, great question. I think that the modern world we live in is bigger than the international system. I think that's the best way of starting this answer. So when we think about the idea of indigenous international relations, suddenly we've gone beyond state-to-state -state relations. So there's a very rich possibility of ideas, of traditions available all throughout the world, right? Go back to India, Pakistan. There are historic examples of Hindus and Muslims and Sikhs living together in communities at peace for centuries before the need to divide them in order to create these new nation states, right? So what were the mechanisms available that kept those different groups of people at peace with each other? Those are forms of sovereignty that existed, that have been displaced by the exclusive form of sovereignty we see with the nation state. And also related to this is, you know, this complicated question of America, <laughs> Because America is at the same time a historically white supremacist nation state. However, it's also the guarantor of a liberal world order that theoretically is against racism, sort of, right? It's theoretically against it. So when America spreads its values around the world, if it does so in good faith, America's Schmidt's biggest enemy because America's replacing all those traditional nation state divisions with a new universal concept of humanity. However, we know America's not doing this in good faith, right? We know that the US empire is still like other traditional empires seeking to enrich itself, right? And the extent to which it says it's doing a beneficial thing for the world, it's only because that disarms the world from resisting US expansion, right? And so the U.S. is both a traditional nation state and also a kind of empire eclipsing traditional nation states. Germany itself is a nation that was cobbled together out of Bavaria and Prussia and Saxony and other states that make up Germany today. And it didn't exist till the middle of the 1800s, right? 1860s is when the um, Austro-Prussian and Franco-Prussian wars came to an end and you see the Bismarck, Kaiser, Germany come to the fore, right? And even today's Germany doesn't have half of that stuff in Prussia off on the East Wing that was in the old Imperial Germany at the beginning of the 20th century. So Germany itself is being, meaning those German Nazis, they themselves are being disingenuous when they pose that there's a pure concept of Germany. That actually comes from Michel Foucault, right? The idea of unlearning systems of thought. And it's really like looking throughout how it's really these myths, these collective stories that keep these narratives going. That when we look at it, it goes like way back to one idea. 
right? Like, like right now, like it goes way back to the idea of Nietzsche that talked about the will to power that influences uh, these thinkers, that influences reality, and it's like a cycle, right? Because then you have the materiality influencing thought, then thought creating materiality, and then just like this loop and loop and loop. And when you say like rebel against your parents, that's how you rebel against that that ideological loop right there, and we start looking at a different alternative. Now, uh, just to wrap it up, Jovian, um, I want to ask, why is it important for us? And what I mean as like uh, young people starting to critically look at these social structures, at these myths, um, why should we unlearn IR? Why should we unlearn international relations? In other words, what do you think us as a global community should be striving towards? So I go back to that important point that I was making before about the work of Bill Robinson, uh, William Robinson, I mentioned him before. So he argues that international relations as it's taught in political science, remember I'm a political scientist and I teach international relations. So I'm criticizing myself in addition to anybody who teaches this at UBC or Simon Fraser or anywhere else, right? International relations as it's presently taught is not a science. It's an ideology of the state. It's not empirical. It's an unempirical ideological discipline. When you study realism from Hans Morgenthau, who then says that states are fighting collectives, what he's saying is this is how it should be. It's not the only way that it is, right? Look at, for example, Reagan and Gorbachev, right? A great article written by Alexander Wendt, who's a traditional international relations scholar, W-E-N-D-T, Alexander Wendt. He writes an essay called Anarchy is What States Make of It. And in that essay, he talks about social constructivism through the first half. But in the second half, he does an analysis of the ballet, the dance of Reagan and Gorbachev in the mid to late 80s. And I can speak to this personally because Raisa Gorbachev visited my elementary school when Ronald Reagan and Gorbachev, Mikhail Gorbachev, were meeting at the UN because I'm from New York City. And at that time, these guys were discussing what? Paring down nuclear weapons, right? Not aiming nukes at each other, coming up with some sort of an agreement that would reduce global tensions. So indeed, are states fighting collectives or are they also capable of cooperation? Clearly, they're capable of cooperation. So the entire realist tradition has a bleak view of human nature. And at the very root of it, what reinforces that bleak view of human nature? <clears throat> the threat, the threat. There's this famous joke by Bill Hicks, a comedian, who says, you know, uh, he, he's, he's pretending to be John Wayne, right? He's pretending to be John Wayne, and he's out on the Wild West, right? And he finds an indigenous person, and he's looking at this indigenous person, the indigenous person is just fishing in a watering hole, right? That's what they did for centuries, right? Subsistence lifestyle, right? And then John Wayne sees the indigenous person, he throws a gun near the indigenous person, and he starts whispering, pick up the gun, pick up the gun. And then the indigenous person says, no, no, white man, I don't want to pick up that gun. Because I know if I pick up that gun, you're going you're gonna, to you're gonna think I'm threatening you and you're going to shoot me. But then the, the colonist says, pick up the gun. Keeps doing it over and over again. So finally, the indigenous guy picks up the gun and he doesn't do anything with it. And then suddenly Bill Hicks goes, because a machine gun is shot and then the indigenous guy is dead. Right. So this is our international relations. We're assuming someone's a threat. We're constructing them as a threat. And the moment they act like a threat, it's, you know, gloves off. We're going to shoot at them and annihilate them. The issue is that so much of world politics, I'd argue that the majority of it, I'd actually argue the overwhelming majority of it has nothing to do with this. <laughs> because world politics is simply power relations between people on a global stage. And when people travel from one country to another, there's power relations. When people from one country live in another, another country, there's power relations. When languages interact, there's power relations. And the majority of the time that those interactions occur, there's no violence happening. There's maybe a power differential. Maybe people aren't equal, but they find all kinds of ways to do what they need to do without taking out weapons and killing each other. 
So these states have an interest in holding on to the ability to use force as a threat in their back pocket, up their sleeve, as it were. And because of that, I think we need to unlearn IR. We need to learn that our identity is global. We are a human animal before we are a member of a state. So Jovian, uh, thank you so much for coming along. Is there anything that you would like to plug in? Feel free to do so. I know that you mentioned that you have a podcast yourself, so where you talk about similar topics. Yeah, thank you. Um, my podcast is called The Jovian Mundo Show. It's on YouTube. If you Google Jovian, J-O-V-I-A-N, Mundo, M-O-O-N-D-O-U-G-H, show. Um, if you Google that on your YouTube search engine, it should come up right away. Um, you can also find us on Spotify. So um, we take a lot of inspiration from the late, great Michael Brooks and um, try to bring uh, accessible conversation around these topics, usually refracted through the lens of current events. But we also talk a lot about general ideas, about philosophies um, as well. And once in a while, we'll have a special topic show where we'll talk about dating or something like that just to keep things a little fresh. reason we give for requiring an army imply that our neighbor who denies the desire for conquest just as much as our own state and who for his part also keeps an army only for reasons of self-defense is a hypocrite and a cunning animal who would like nothing better than to overpower a harmless and awkward victim without any fight thus all states are now ranged against each other they presuppose their neighbors bad disposition and their own good disposition this presupposition however is inhumane as bad as war and worse at bottom indeed it is itself the challenge and the cause of wars because as i have said it attributes immorality to the neighbor and thus provokes a hostile disposition and act we must then abjure the doctrine of the army as a means of self-defense, just as completely as the desire for conquest. From the Wanderer and His Shadow, Aphorisms 284, Nietzsche.